because in that area and in that time um, in history in the United States was the racial issue and the combining of schools and black, blacks and whites. And so even though they had this team had a great football coach, they had decided to place a black football coach to aid in this endeavor to bring the races together. And so he had a task before him to take a team of diverse ethnicities together to win football games and obviously with a desire to win a championship yet again. He faced many trials. He faced the racial agenda from the forefront of his being on scene at the school. It was the first time this school had had a diverse group, black and white, football team. So if you can imagine in those days, that didn't fare very well between the players or the coaches that had been, if you will, set aside from their um, typical duties as a premier football coach. But what Coach Herman Boone learned was that if this team, all its diversity and its battling in its neighborhood and many of the guys feeling the pressure of not only winning but playing on a team in which they were to embrace one another as teammates, he learned that what he had to do was help these men see, these young guys see, that if they were going to win football games if they were going to accomplish the task that needed to be accomplished, they needed to be more than schoolmates. They needed to be more than just a symbol of what it looked like for blacks and whites to come together. They had to be nothing less than brothers. They had to embrace one another on a whole other level. And so this um, coach who had a strategic plan to bring these men together, he had placed them in, if you will, football camp in a strategic manner, making them room together, doing everything he could to bring them together, but still fighting, still feuding, still having this racial agenda amongst themselves. Early one morning, before the sun arose, like 4 o'clock in the morning, he woke every one of them up, and they had to run early in the morning, exhausted, tired, and frustrated, from this long run with one another, they end up strategically on a Civil War battlefield. And he tells the story that on this sacred ground, both blacks and whites fought together, shedding their blood side by side for one purpose. And he began to explain to these men that if you're going to be successful, if you're going to accomplish this task then you've got to come together as a team. And something fascinating happened. Gary Bertier and Julius, can't remember what his last name is, he was a white and black leader. And these, both of these guys played football very well, and both of these guys were seen as leaders on their team. They decided, after much debate, that they would accept one another for who they were and set racial agendas aside, and they became brothers on and off the field, even to the point that when Gary Bertier wrecked his car 
being a star football player and was paralyzed for life, that Julius came to the hospital broken and in tears, and they called each other brother. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. It's the Titans, but it's a true story of these men coming together as a, as a brotherhood to win games. You see, the world understands that to accomplish a task and a goal, you cannot set out alone. You cannot be a man on an island and accomplish a great task. It takes teamwork. It takes togetherness. It takes embracing other people within a single purpose and a single vision to make this happen. I believe that one of the greatest attacks on God's church is division. I believe that one of the greatest struggles we face in this nation, in this state, and in this county is that we have churches who set out for themselves. They're pursuing selfish agendas. They're, if you will, seeking their own endeavors to be known rather than knowing that we've got to come together if we're going to proclaim the gospel to the nations. You see, God's given us a mission. He's given us a task. We are not without purpose. In fact, if anyone ought to be able to laugh and enjoy life, and if anyone has purpose, it's the church of the living God. It is, it is us who, does, who, who don't have just a vision to build a nice building and nice facilities and, and if you will, just be a, a church with many people. That's not our vision at all. Our vision and mission is to reach the nation with the gospel by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we set out on that alone, then we surely will not accomplish what God has sent His Spirit in us to accomplish. I believe that the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians is battling the front of division and selfish endeavors. We know from the context of Philippians, that Paul is writing not only as a missionary letter to give thanks for their partnership in the gospel, but also he's, he is writing to help, if you will, them overcome and see beyond themselves and see the purpose for which they've been redeemed and put together. We know this because of Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Know this because in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, the very next passage, Paul says, stop pursuing your own agendas, stop concerning yourself with your own purposes, and start ministering to one another. And then he uses an example, four to be exact. He uses the premier example of humility and servantry being Jesus Christ. Then he uses Timothy and Epaphroditus. As men who selfishly served in the gospel, living not for themselves, but living for others. And then, in chapter 3, Paul uses his own life as a representation of someone who has embraced the gospel in such a way that their life is no longer their own, but it's now submitted to Christ and His kingdom and His work for His purposes. If we're going to experience 
revival and awakening, and if we're going to experience the fullness of what it means to be the church of the living God, then we're going to have to decide to be together for the gospel. We're going to have to decide to set aside some petty differences. We're going to have to get past racial agendas. We're going to have to get past societal agendas. We're going to have to get past this level of this individual has more money or is in higher rank than I am. When you come to the cross, nobody's rich, everybody's poor, nobody's black, nobody's white, and we're all equally the same when we stand before King Jesus. The church has got to begin to see that when it comes to the kingdom, we are all servants and slaves of the same master seeking the same purpose for the glory of God. I believe Paul was combating this. We also know this in Philippians chapter 4 because he calls out two ladies. He calls out Iodius and Syntyche. And he says, I, I'm, I'm exhorting you. It's a strong word of encouragement, and he does this publicly because I don't know if you know this or not, but they didn't have the canon of Scripture. They didn't have Romans and Galatians. They were being, being written at the time. And so the church would get the letter, and they would read it publicly. So I don't what, how would you feel if you were the two ladies sitting here reading and saying, Man, Paul, this is awesome. Thank you so much. And he says, Oh, yeah, by the way, I exhort you, Seneca, and I exhort you, Iodia, stop pursuing your own agendas and start serving back in the kingdom of God with humility. Boy, wouldn't that be a day around here? You see, it was important to the Apostle Paul to combat selfish ambitions and endeavors. You see, what we have often is we have within the local church, and I've been in it long enough, not as a pastor, but just as a simple follower of Jesus, seeking the kingdom of God, wanting, my, wanting the best for the local church, Everybody has their own ministry and program, and if we're going to get rid of that, then it'll be over my dead body because it's about me and my ministry. No matter how dead and no matter how no good it is anymore, it's got my papa's name on it, and I'm going to keep it. You see, it's not about your agenda. It's not about your ministry. It's about the kingdom of God. Iodian Syntica, hey, by the way, Paul says they were servants in the kingdom. The very next verse, he says, look, work beside these ladies. They've been faithful in the gospel, but they had got distracted in some fashion. I'm only pointing out that if we're going to be successful in today's society and the culture in which we live and the world in which we live, we must, by choice and by humility, submit ourselves to one another for a greater kingdom purpose. And I believe the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, 27-30 introduces this subject in a very particular manner in order to urge the church to be about one purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you ever want to study Philippians 1, 27-30, this is the center text of the entire book. This is the purpose statement which he is writing. This is the theme that arises from this text. The theme I have, not that I have given it, but the way I state the theme is this. It is unity in the gospel through humility for the glory of Christ Jesus. Unity through humility, unity in the gospel through humility 
for the glory of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul desires that the people of God experience unity, togetherness. And their togetherness, Paul says in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, is for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a question would be, how do we do this? How do we come together? How do we work side by side through some differences that we may not like? How do we come together for the gospel? How do we work side by side? How do we accomplish the task of preaching the gospel to the nations between not just within this church, but within this church and alongside of and with other churches? That's what we ought to be, right? I mean, we're not to be an association that's about just one about each other's agendas and every now and then we come together and do a little mission thing. That's not what we're about. We're about constantly and continuously working together to proclaim the gospel to the nations. That's just Scripture. That's just what purpose God's given us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I can go on with the text, Acts 1, 8. Jesus makes it clear and the Spirit of God makes it clear that we have been redeemed to proclaim the gospel message to the ends of the earth. Have we embraced it? How do we do this together? Well, I believe Paul gives us probably more than I have recognized a few practical truths to help us embrace and to help us live together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think the first one is this. You ready for this? The first one is we must recognize that our allegiance to King Jesus distinguishes us from the world. We must recognize that our allegiance to King Jesus distinguishes us. It sets us apart from worldly affairs and worldly endeavors, and it sets us apart as a different kind of people. Hey, listen, you know what I'm amazed by? By my own life. I'm amazed in my own life that I'm not stranger than the world. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, my life ought to be so awkward in a world that is so opposed to the gospel that I often stick out like a sore thumb, not by the way I dress or maybe the way I smell or fix my hair, though I do need, you know, I need a haircut. However, look at Mr. Herbert. I'll keep it for a while. <laughs> what will be distinguished? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, um, one scholar said it this way, and I like this. It just comes to my mind. It's like Paul's holding his finger up, and he says, this is the one thing that I want you to do. If you don't do anything else, Paul says, this one thing you do. Only let, now listen, I want to translate this a little different than what's in your text because I, I want to capture what Paul's actually saying. He says, only let your lifestyle as a kingdom citizen be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a word here that we translate into English as conduct, but it was full of life and it was full of meaning to the original reader. And what Paul is getting across to the people of God that are reading the text, is that they are wholly different. This world is not their home, but they're citizens of another land. The kingdom in which they found themselves in physically in Rome was not who they gave allegiance to. But their citizenship 
was under the rule and the authority of another king, of another ruler. You see, when they heard this word, what they were thinking about is citizenship in the Greek world. And citizenship in the Greek world was something of pride. In other words, they prided themselves as being citizens of Rome. And in the Roman culture, this word that Paul is using, this description Paul is using, conveyed the idea in that culture that I, as a citizen of the Greek culture, am not pursuing my own agenda, but rather I am going to do whatever is good and best for the entire society. So it had this community idea to it that I would lay down my gifts, lay down my abilities, and everything that I did was to invest back in the community to make it a greater place for everyone else to live. And so when Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, when he says the idea of conduct that we translate it in, he's really saying, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, live differently. It's not that you're citizens of the Greek culture, but live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Distinguish yourself by your lifestyle that you have been wholly set aside for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so their lifestyle was to be lived out in such a fashion that the world could distinguish them as a different people. Paul uses this word again in Philippians chapter 3, and I think he um, gives us a greater picture of what he's conveying here. Philippians three seventeen. He says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and I tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now listen to verse 19, because I believe it's describing somewhat of the culture in which they live, or at least the leadership and the, and the philosophy influence. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And so I think Paul's describing the earthly culture, the Greek culture in which they're in, takes a perspective of selfish endeavors, takes a perspective of, if you will, fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Whose mind is set on earthly things. In other words, they're endeavoring to exalt themselves rather than magnifying Christ. And so then he says this in verse 20. For our citizenship, in other words, as opposing to theirs, set aside and distinguish, ours is different. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so there is a direct exhortation here that Paul says, if you focus on one thing and you need to focus on one thing, focus on this. Make your life 
a resemblance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure that your life is consumed with the good news that Jesus Christ is king. You see, what's important to the believer, or what should be important to the believer, what should be the focus of the believer, what should inhabit the desires and the passions of the believer, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul says, individually, in each one of your lives, only this one thing I want you to focus on. Let your life as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we can never live worthy of the gospel, but we can live lives that reflect the beauty of the gospel. We can live lives that the outside world sees, that even in evil circumstances, there's a great hope that he possesses, or there's a great hope that possesses him. Amen? He's driven by something different. He's not like everyone else I've seen. His passion is to make Jesus Christ known. Her passion is the glory of God. And so Paul says, if we are going to be together for the gospel, the first thing we must do is recognize this, that Jesus Christ is our king because we are heavenly citizens, and because we're heavenly citizens, we're going to be distinguished from the world because our passions, our desires, our hungers, and our lifestyle is wholly different than the world in which we live. Paul was concerned that they were losing their focus. I'm concerned they were losing our focus. I know that I'm tempted to lose my focus. I know and I've experienced people whose focus becomes religion. What you got to do here, what you got to do here, when you got to go here, you got to be at church here, you got to be at church there, rather than just saying, God... Just give me you. Some people have lost their focus because they're in the local church and all of their desires are focused on patting their wallet, building their houses, and possessing their toys. And they've lost their passion, their focus on the gospel. If we're ever going to be a people who are wholly different if we're ever going to be a people who come together for the gospel, we must first realize our allegiance is to the king and it distinguishes us from the world. Hey, listen. Transparent. I'm sick and tired of all the debate and the argument between Baptist circles on things that just don't matter that much. All these denominations, Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, Hulu Baptists, I don't have no idea. All of them focusing and battling over things that got nothing to do with the gospel. We, if anybody, ought to learn to agree to disagree on some matters, but to come together for the gospel because we got one king. You see, even the Greek culture understood that we have one king. We're, we give allegiance to the Caesar in the Greek culture. Paul's saying, that's not the allegiance you give to. You give the allegiance to the king, and you submit to him, and your whole life is wrapped up in living for the gospel. That's what I want you to focus on. That's where I want you to be. I, I'm, I testify, people try to get me in these conversations. You're like a target when you become a pastor. For stuff that, just to me, don't matter. And people are like, why don't it matter to you? I'm like, it just don't matter, because it, 
It just is nothing that the Scriptures give a lot of credence to or important weight to. Right? And I'm like, I just don't, I don't have time for it. That sounds cruel and indifferent. But I'm just telling you, there's people out there hungering for the Word of God. I want to give them the Word and leave the opinions aside. If you're my opinion, we can sit down and talk a few minutes about it, but it ain't going to be long because I've got other things to do that's important for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we've got to recognize that our allegiance is to King Jesus and that will distinguish us from the world. Number two, I believe this. <clears throat> and I believe these tie together, by the way. We must remain relentless in our passion to live and proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. I love the writings of the Apostle Paul simply because he loves to use military language. He loves to use... Um, my mind just went completely blank. Athletic language. And I know I don't look real athletic, but I do like athletics. And so his, his writings are very interesting to me simply because he loves to take life that those people lived and he loved to show them the gospel in light of the events and the surroundings in their life, and he loved to, man, just expose the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ in it all. But listen to what he says. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now, these are some, this is an important phrase. What kind of affairs is he looking for? What kind of life is Paul looking for in these believers? That... You stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul says, if I remain in prison where I'm at, and somebody brings news to me about the events in your life or what you're doing, or if I'm able to be released and I actually live through this crisis in my life, and I come to see you, if it's anything I want to see about you is this that you have a one purpose in mind. You see, we translate the word be single-minded, and it can really be translated single-purposed. And so what Paul's conveying to them is think alike, not in everything, but in this one thing, which is the gospel. He says, what I want to hear about you is that you are standing fast together with one mind and one spirit. In other words, with one purpose, having one aim in mind. And that aim absolutely consumes your energies, your focus, and everything that you do. And so he uses, if you will, um, military and athletic language to convey how faithful he wants them to be in this endeavor. Listen to what he says. First of all, he says this. I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. And so the, the word here is a military, um, military language that gives the idea of being unmovable. They're going, they need to be steadfast. Because, see, he realized, as the military realized, that there's going to be opposers. I mean, if you're in the military, you expect to what? Yeah, you expect to fight. That's what you've been trained to do. That's what you've been called into the military to do. And so you might as well expect up front that there may come a day that you're going to have to go out into the battlefield and you're going to have to push against the enemy. Well, Paul realized that though the believer was not in a physical war, they were in a spiritual battle. We know this from his writings, particularly Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes that... 
we're not, in, we're not fighting flesh and blood, but a spiritual battle, which, by the way, is much more intense and much more distractive and, by the way, is much more deceptive because oftentimes we don't even realize that what we're really battling against, we can't see with our eyes. But yet it's attacking our mind. It's attacking our heart. It, we're allowing it in to our thinking, and it conforms and shapes the way we think, and the way we think is the way we're going to live. I tell our church quite often, because I've got to be reminded of this, that what you believe is how you live. This formula sticks out of my mind. Maybe it'll stick out in you, in your mind. Stated belief plus actual belief equals the way you live. So you can state the way you believe. Man, I, I'm telling you what, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sins. And I believe, man, God's coming back to judge me. And then your actual lifestyle may be that of constant and consistent rebellion against God. That equals your actual belief. You don't believe that. You don't believe what you say. If you believe God was coming back to judge, I kind of doubt you would continuously live in rebellion towards Him. Amen? You see, stated belief plus, plus the way you live your life is going to show how you actually believe. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that God sent Jesus Christ into this world to fulfill my desires with himself so that I can then live to the pleasure of the living God and enjoy every stinking minute of it. I believe that with all of my heart. I know you don't like the word stinking. It just kind of came out, okay? <laughs> it's a beautiful thing that when you submit yourself to Christ, man, he consumes you. Now listen to me. What Paul is conveying to these people is that he desires for them to stand fast. Don't be moved. You're going to be in battle. There's going to be attackers. There's going to be, listen, there's going to be people that's going to try to persuade you differently. There's going to be people who are going to attempt to place everything in your path to distract you from the pleasure that's in Christ. But you stand fast. Don't move. Remain steadfast. You know, an illustration that comes to my mind, and this is how the enemy can work. There was a prophet in the Old Testament that was hired by a king to prophesy against Israel, right? And he would never prophesy against Israel because God wouldn't let him. Well, then he just kind of told the king, whispered in his ear, if I remember the story right, and he said, just send your women in and attract them in and they'll come in flocks and herds, commit adultery, and then you can destroy them. And that's exactly what happened. You see... The enemy is always looking for the opportunity to distract. Paul's saying, you, mean, you remain steadfast. It doesn't matter how, it, how good it looks. The gospel is better, and you remain steadfast. Now listen to what he says about this. He's speaking about the relentlessness of a soldier because a soldier at his post would not leave it. He would not be distracted. He would stand for hours at his post keeping watch out because he knew the cost of being distracted and deterred from his mission. Paul's using language that's very familiar with him in this, and he says, hey, listen, it doesn't matter the distractions that may come. It is vital to not only um, the health of the church, but to you, that you stand fast in the gospel. And so there's a few things he points out about this. He says this, you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. 
You stand fast with one purpose, and that is the glory of God exposed through the gospel all over the world. Don't lose it. Remain faithful. And he says they are to strive side by side in the gospel. That's an athletic term. In their steadfastness, they're to stand together, locked arm in arm. No man is to be alone in this battle. And the idea of striving side by side really gave the image of two runners or a group of runners athletically that would run together. And when they ran together, what empowered them and encouraged them was they saw the neighboring teammate running right alongside of them. And so it kind of gave the image in their mind and in my mind that these people locked arm in arm, side by side, unmovable, undistracted, and unbreakable. And so no matter what temptations came their way, no matter what arguments may have arose, no matter what um, the opposers or the enemies may do, these people would stand arm in arm for the gospel. And so what Paul was saying, as you stand fast, you strive together for the faith of the gospel. There's go- in striving, there's difficulty. Right? I mean, it's not going to be easy. If you come to church and if you join a body of Christ and you think it's going to be all lovely and hunky-dory, then you better go somewhere else. Because it's not that easy. But we with our minds have one purpose and we say, you know what? I don't really like the way the guy looks. I don't really like the way he smells. I don't really like all his ideas. But he loves the gospel. I love the gospel. And we can work together. And nothing's going to deter us. It's locking arm in arm. That's the word that he uses to convey what it means. No opportunity for division. A single passion. A single effort wholeheartedly pursuing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would, this, what would the county and the state and the United States look like if we just set aside our petty little differences as churches and we began to say, you know what, he may like that or he, she may like that, but they love the gospel more and so we're going to join with that church and we're not concerned about whether members switch places, all these church hoppers all over the world. We're just going to join side by side, locked arm in arm, and we're going to pursue the gospel wholeheartedly that the nations may know that Jesus Christ is king and there ain't no hope outside of him. You see, it's a conscious decision we make to set aside our petty differences. Are there people that I work side by side with that I disagree with? Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you what. They're some of the greatest friends that I've ever known. I remember, this is an illustration. I didn't get to preach last night, so y'all in for a doozy tonight. (laughs) I was all wired up and ready. I remember, and some of y'all, most of y'all familiar with this, I remember the first time encountering snowbird people. I thought, man, that's a weird group of folk. You know, I was serving in the mountains of North Carolina, and I was a youth pastor, and, you know, I'd heard of the camp, but hadn't really met anybody. And then I finally met Brandon Holloway, one of my greatest friends. And me and him became friends. He's clean cut, just a big guy, and it, man, just wonderful. We were single, and so me and him just hung out together as friends, living the Christian life. He calls me one day. He's a high school teacher, and he says, Hey, man, one of our teachers just, just passed away instantly. Can you come and be ready to counsel? I said, Absolutely, man. I'll be, I'll be there in a minute. So I come, and I'm sitting in the office, and all around me are people from Snowbird, and I didn't know that. I just knew that these are some weird-looking folks. they got long beards. They just are odd-looking, man. And I thought, woo-wee, who is this? So anyway, we left, walking up the sidewalk, and this one guy comes beside me. 
He said, you Joel Bratcher? I said, yeah. Who are you? Because I just didn't recognize him. He said, I'm Sean Clark. And I said, Sean, Sean Clark? Last I heard about you, well, we won't talk about that. And then we began to, again, build a relationship that I just never expected. It came out of the blue. And I remember beginning to get to know those people that I first thought, they're strange. I mean, you can't, because at the time I had some legalistic opinions. I'm just being honest with you. I'm being transparent this morning. This morning. I'm used to preaching on Sunday morning, so this evening. And so, man, God really began to deal with me. And he said, you know what? Joel, that ain't important to the kingdom of God. Well, son, can you not work with these people for the gospel? And they have become the greatest encouragers and the greatest side-by-side soldiers in the gospel that I've met in a long time. Sean Clark has become one of the closest and greatest friends of my life. And listen to me. Paul says, with one purpose. You know why we, we work together through our differences? And by the way, we don't have that many anymore. My legalistic junk is gone. Now, I don't care what they look like. As long as somebody loves the gospel and they love Bible doctrine and teaching and they love the Bible, man, we can work together. And so they've become some of my greatest encouragers. Listen, all I did is just obeyed God and said, Lord, I'm just going to surrender to you. Division's not an option. My opinions don't matter. The gospel matters for eternity. Amen? And so they were to strive side by side. But let me tell you, listen to this. One more thing about being steadfast. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. And listen to what, he, what I believe Paul is saying this. That us being a people who are striving side by side and who are remaining relentless in our passion for the gospel, we must fearlessly face the opposition with a relentless attitude. Listen to what he says. He says, don't be terrified by your adversaries. In other words, don't be afraid. As my wife says, what are they going to do if you preach the gospel? Stab you to heaven? What are they going to do if you live for Jesus? Run you over with a Mack truck to heaven? Who cares, man? The end game is I stand at the feet or bow at the feet of King Jesus and I live in pleasure forevermore. You see, he is speaking of fearlessness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, you know what we need? And this ain't my opinion. I just believe this arises from the text. Paul says, this is what we need. If you're going to be a church that is in unity through humility for the glory of Jesus Christ, you must fearlessly face the opposition with the good news that Jesus Christ is alive. And so you know what we need? You know what we need? We need some senior adults, we need some young adults, and we need some other adults. I don't know what category to put them in. I just know that they're younger than Herbert. (laughs) We need those people to fearlessly go into a world and live and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without concern about whether they'll lose their jobs or their paycheck or their pension or even their lives, that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings and the hope of the world. It's relentless, fearless, embracing the gospel. Hey, listen, I just read a book just recently And it says, Risk is Right, by John Piper. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do it. It's about that thick. So some of you, Jason, 
You can read it, brother. It's very short and to the point, but man, it was challenging to me. He said, it, it doesn't matter what you, no matter what you think in life, you're taking a risk. Why not risk it all for something that's for eternal gain? Relentless, fearless preaching of the gospel that the world may know who Christ is. You say, man, that's not in the text. Yes, it is. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, adversaries, whatever that word is. He, what he says is he saying, your, listen, this, is, this to me is amazing. He says, your togetherness in the gospel, your striving side by side in the face of opposition, your relentless faith in the gospel and striving together, hand in hand by believers, churches together. He said it testifies to the world that judgment is coming and that what we say is true. And he said it testifies to you that you've been redeemed. You see, fearless, relentless passion for the gospel testifies to the world of the beauty and the glory and the pleasure of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. A single passion, a relentless attitude that the gospel of Jesus Christ will be made known. Hey, listen, can I remind you this evening, we don't trust in tanks, we don't trust in, in the army, we don't trust in those things for deliverance. Our deliverance is in the Lord. Amen? That whether in this life or the next, I'm His. And I'm going to enjoy pleasures in Christ throughout all eternity. Fearlessly facing the opposition with a relentless attitude. Third and lastly, verse 29 and 30. I want you to listen to this text closely. If you don't, you'll miss it. Paul says, To you it has been granted as a grace gift on behalf of Christ... Not only to believe in Him, but also to, what church? Suffer for His sake. Now I want you to listen. Number three, if we are going to be together for the gospel, if we are going to serve side by side, relentlessly preaching Jesus, then we must expect suffering. Now I know that we live in a nation for the most part this experience safety and security and comfort and so to think of suffering is like thinking about eating dirt it's about it's like thinking of if you will things that we just despise and hate nobody wants to talk about it and nobody wants to experience suffering amen tabitha could probably tell you well that when people come in that doctor's office it could be just a scratch on the toe. Give me something. I can't handle the pain. Right? We don't like to suffer. We don't like pain. Well, listen to me. I just want to encourage you this evening. If, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ and you want to follow the Lord Jesus, I'll promise you two things. Number one, he'll fill you with pleasures forevermore. Number two, you're going to suffer for the gospel. The good news is that the pleasure of knowing Christ far outweighs the cost of following Him. You see, Paul says this. This is a unique word I think Paul uses, at least for me it is, when he says, for you to have been granted. The word literally means grace gift 
or a gift of grace. Now, when we think about grace, we think about what? Receiving what we don't deserve. And you say, Joel, suffering for the gospel? Two things, he says, that is a grace gift to us. A grace gift, number one, that we've been given the ability to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace gift from God. Grace gift number two, we've been given the privilege of suffering because of him of feeling physical pain, feeling opposition, feeling the weight of what it means to look like Jesus Christ and to follow Him. I find that amazing. I never looked at suffering as a gift. I never thought that suffering for anything was a gift, but it was all completely evil. I will say that it's evil that causes the suffering, but the suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ should not only be expected but it should bring great rejoicing and a joyful occasion in the life of the believer. You say, Joel, how can it be so joyful? I'll tell you why. Because you're suffering because you look so much like the Creator. You look so much like the Redeemer. You look so much like Jesus Christ that the world that opposes Him cannot help but to impose suffering and pain and ridicule against you because you look like Jesus. That's why it's a grace gift. Anytime we suffer for Jesus, anytime that somebody recognizes that my allegiance is to the king, that's a gift of grace from God. Because without him, that could not be true. Hey, listen, if you think it's any other way, if you think for one moment that you're the one that redeemed yourself or that you had something to do with it, you've missed the scriptures. It is all of God. And any way I look like, live like Jesus is because the Spirit of God is working in me to make me look like King Jesus. And when we look like King Jesus, we're going to suffer like King Jesus. Jesus even told His disciples, if your master suffers, why don't you expect it? Okay, let me give you another text. It's Peter, right? Now if I can find it. I always say that, and I never am able to find out what the text that I'm looking for. And it just comes to mind. Well, I quote, quote it the best I can. I'll let you look it up. Um, <laughs> it just left me. It might be up here. Let me see. First Peter 4.12. I'm sorry. <laughs> now you've got to go home and study because I've given you a text. That First Peter 4.12. I want you to listen to this. Beloved, do not think it strange or out of the ordinary concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Verse 13, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, Paul is only writing to the Philippians to tell them, Hey, look, it's a grace gift when you suffer. Paul says, Man, I'm in prison. It stinks. I might even lose my head, but I want you to know, friends, I'm rejoicing because the grace of God is being poured out in me and on me and around me, and my life ain't about my own. It's about the gospel. So if I lose my head, I've gained because the people around me, the palace guard and other believers see that my faith is not in this world and what it offers, but my faith is in the heavenly king. I'm a heavenly citizen. This world is not my home, and my comfort and my joy and my pleasure is in Christ in such a, to such an extent that if I die for him, then I rejoice and I give praise. 
It's a grace gift. It hasn't only been given to you to believe on Jesus Christ, but to suffer for His sake. And so Paul says, by implication, if you're going to serve together for the gospel, I want you to know you're going to be persecuted. I want you to know you're going to face trials. I want you to know that the outside world is going to oppose you. But don't sweat it. Don't be discouraged. But rather be glad and rejoice. Because to suffer like Jesus is a gift of marvelous grace. Hey, I'm almost through. But listen, we sing songs about God's marvelous grace, and the thing that comes to our mind is, man, we're going to heaven one day. Marvelous grace. Yeah, I agree with that. Have we ever thought marvelous grace, I'm suffering for Jesus? And I'm not talking about cancer. I'm not talking about disease. I'm talking about absolutely knowing that you've been rejected by your neighbors that you've been physically persecuted or you've been denied in some particular way or you've been rejected by some particular church or church people because you're standing on the book and you're living by the gospel and so they're opposing you in light or heavy ways. Do you ever say marvelous grace <laughs> has been poured out on me because I'm being rejected? Boy, that changed the way you look at evangelism. When you're persecuted, you'll be like, man, thank God. The gospel was so clearly presented. Do I want that person to be redeemed? Absolutely. But I also know this, that we live in a world in which many people will reject. Many people will never believe. And the world will come crashing against the message of the gospel. How are we going to be together for the gospel? How are we going to do this? I, I just believe we've got to realize that we must show our allegiance to the king. Secondly, we have got to remain relentless in our passion for the gospel. Nothing can distract us. Nothing can deter us. We must place our affections on things above. And third and lastly, we must expect and then rejoice when we suffer. I believe, and this statement's at the bottom up here. I'll just read it to you. God, God put this in my heart this afternoon, and that's why it's not in my notes, but it's on the screen. Suffering for the gospel is a joyous and satisfying occasion in the life of the one who finds Christ to be most satisfying. For as his master suffered for righteousness, so will the follower suffer for such. The true follower of Christ will be satisfied and joyful when they suffer because their satisfaction is not out there it's in here it's with him wherever you find yourself this is where it's at God we need you to give us hearts of humility and surrender and submission to the gospel we need in this day and age to be together for the gospel. We need to give our absolute allegiance to the king. We need a relentless, fearless spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're so afraid of what our family and friends may think or what the society may say. God, give us fearless and rel rel relentless faith in the gospel to strive side by side. And then, God, I pray that you'd give us a spirit of rejoicing
and pleasure when we suffer for the gospel because we are experiencing what our king experienced. We are experiencing the grace gift of God and suffering for the gospel tonight. Open our hearts and minds to your word in such a way that we join hands and stand firm and relentless in suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brother Herbert, would you